This is Infidel One. Offending Coyote Down. Offending Coyote Down. Roger that. Welcome to Trappin' Radio. We're proud, organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of North America. Let me tell you a little story about how I was raised. Every day work, every day pray. God, family, friends, yeah, everybody sins. A winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Help folks in need, don't fall for greed. A jealous man is weak, so think before you speak. If you love them, let them know. If you hate, let it go. Fast can be fun, but sometimes you need slow. God is all good, the devil is so real. So listen up, y'all, because this is how I feel. I won't back up, I don't back down I've been raised up to stand my ground Take my job, but not my guns Tax my check till I ain't got none Except for the good Lord of above I answer to no one Now let's cover our sponsors. They do a lot to help support Trapping Radio. So I'm asking you guys out there and gals, to help support our sponsors as they keep trapping radio on the air. First sponsors, Oki Cable and Trap Supply. Jeb's the owner of this. He's out of Oklahoma, super guy. You'll not meet anybody nicer. It's somebody you're gonna wanna deal with. You can reach him at OKTrapSupply.com. You can give Jeb a call at 918-429-4648. Not only does he do trap supply guys, he's a fur buyer, so if you're around the Oklahoma or surrounding states, give him a call with your fur. When you need stuff, give him a call and he'll get it out to you as soon as he can. Our second sponsor is F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Guys, if you're into trapping fur, hunting fur, chasing fur with dogs, you're not gonna be able to think of hardly anything that you can't get from F&T. You can reach them at fntpost.com. You can also give them a call at 989-727-8727. Whatever you want, F&T's got it. Wildlife Control Supplies. Proven solutions for wildlife control. Delivering value, expertise, and products to the wildlife individual. If you're in the ADC business, control business, even fur trapping, you need to look at these guys' website. Top-notch company, have everything you would want, even the odd stuff that ADC guys are looking for. You can reach them at wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. You can give them a call at 877-684-7262. International number is 860-844-0101. If you're a wildlife control professional, you need to have wildlife control supplies as one of your favorites on your computer or your phone because when you come across something that you need specialized equipment, Alan will get it right out to you. Now let's go traffic. Toting son of a gun, yeah, I'm hell on the heart, just a rebel on the run. Scared, don't know it, fear, don't feel it. The truth is the light, sometimes you gotta fight. Good beats bad, right beats wrong. I'm a ballroom preacher and this is my song. I'm climbing for the top, representing for the country. I'm the people's champ, right out to dead camp. Shotgun toter, Republican voter, Hank Jr. supporter, let's protect our border. 
to hell with anyone who don't believe in the USA. Cause this is what I say. I won't back up. I don't back down. I've been raised up to stand my ground. Take my job, but not my well, hello guys. Welcome to Trapping Across America. This is your host Clint Locklear on a nice dreary January morning. A lot of y'all are not getting dreary. You're getting snow. Um, I'm sitting here and I've got the weather channel on that I'm watching muted and a lot of y'all guys are really getting hammered. So if you're, if you're running your traps and stuff and you know out there, be safe about it. Uh, don't get stupid about it. Don't get hurt about it. You know, think about hypothermia. I know we're all big strong men and you know vikings at heart but sometimes a little bit of uh caution is not a bad thing i would say so you know just think about what's going on around you as far as driving and stuff like that and uh everybody be safe and be happy trappers and and then uh, the weather clear then we can go back to the beautiful days that we all enjoy so i just want to say that but i am amazed guys i am amazed at the wussies that americans have become over weather watching the the news channel uh, in the in the weather report this morning because you know, we're lucky where we're at right now We're kind of in a bubble out of the snow and ice where I live right now. It's on both sides of us It's way down south of us. It's way all the way up north of us. So we're kind of in a bubble and uh, Randy called me he said coming over the mountains coming down 75 was a bit hairy early this morning they're going down to, to do some trapping south of me and you know that that's pretty bad, but when when did that when is we as americans are afraid of everything i mean absolutely afraid of everything i'm watching people the and, and the proof of point just how ridiculous it is i was watching uh i don't hardly ever watch the weather channel cindy was asking questions so i had to find it on on our on our uh dish so i finally found it i look up on there and this woman is sitting and she's got a coat that's four inches thick She's got a great big faux fur hat sitting on top of her head. She's got a scarf wrapped around her. She's got great big old mittens and snow pants. And I'm like thinking, good God, it must be freezing wherever she's at. I mean, like that, that's like Alaska dressing right there. And as she's talking about how bad and dangerous and stay off the roads. And if you, if you get out, you know, you're asking for trouble and like swatting away a uh, a beehive or something stupid like that a guy in a business suit walks behind her in the suit with dress shoes no gloves no hats no coat looks at her like she's a homeless person or is totally insane now she don't know the guy's walking behind him so she's still in the acting role of oh my goodness it were like one snowflake and degree away from everybody dying so run for your life and hopefully you survive this but keep watching and we'll tell you what's going on. It was, it was obviously, it was a farce to begin with, at least on that lady, you know, but you know, growing up, six, eight inches of snow was not a, even in Tennessee, four to six inches of snow, eight inches of snow, it wasn't like it was disaster, bodies lying in the streets and, and you know, like a nuclear bomb going off the way it is now. I really, I'm, I'm just mystified by the wussification of America when it comes to stuff like this. Same, you know, same with dirt. Kids aren't allowed to play because it's not fair. You have college kids that have, you know, zones where no one can say anything that can offend them. I mean, it, it just drives me insane. 
the way that the woodsification of America is. I don't understand it. I'm not going to be part of it. And and I don't I don't get it, you know, but saying that, you know, be careful when you're out there. Stuff does happen and you just need to keep your your head on a swivel and your eyes looking around and keeping your brain clear. And most of the time, everything will work out just fine as long as you have a little bit of preparedness going with you. So if you're going out in bad weather, you got to go check traps. You know, when I used to trap in Alaska, you know, I'd always have uh, extra clothes in case I got wet. I would, I would uh, always have, I always carry like five or six road flares. And if you've never seen these, what I'm getting ready to tell you, I would suggest you go into an army surplus store when you get a chance of picking up a box. They're surplus now, so they're not that expensive, but they're called heat tabs. And you, you light a match to that little bad boy, it'll burn for 15 minutes at something like 2,500 degrees. It'll catch anything on, on fire. It's not quite thermite, but it's pretty freaking close. So, you know, have some extra water with you, you know, can of nuts or something like that. If you get hungry, get stranded somewhere, you know, and you can deal with pretty much anything. I mean, you know, we used to run around apparently with very little clothes, with very little tools and with no air conditioner, no heaters, no cars, no weather channel. And we survived along just fine. And I still think we're those same humans today. Physically, I just don't think we're that same way anymore mentally. So that's my little rant of the day on that because this stuff just, uh, I mean, it, it's like I'm looking at another world or, or something when I see how this fear mongering everything has become and everybody falls for it. Ch Cindy was in Chattanooga yesterday and we're supposedly going to get some snow tonight. And she said that you couldn't find anything in the grocery stores. Well, good grief guys if you're if you i don't know why everybody don't have you know you don't have to be like me where you keep a year's worth of food on hand because i may be a little bit on the paranoid side but i like being prepared but you always have you know some things where you can go at least a week or two have some bottled water you know have a way that you can heat your house without electricity have a way you can light your house, which is a really good thing you can do with a, a, a boat battery that's charged and LED lights. You know, just to use some common sense when it comes to this stuff and pretty much it'll be over with pretty soon and you don't have to get in a situation where you or your family's ever in trouble just by using a little bit of God-given sense that I would like to think that almost all trappers have just because we're a little more in tune with the world instead of the concrete. So, end of rant, just blown away uh, I, I wanted I'm gonna answer a couple of questions today and one of them is gonna be a lot longer uh, it's one of those that's really close to my heart because I've done this a lot and really have some awesome memories about uh, long beaver lines canoes snares stuff like that and we're gonna get into that but I've got a couple of questions I want to go to first uh, because they're 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 somewhat interesting um the first one is more it's just a it's just a quick question will take but a minute and this just comes from uh cj i just bought you in rage lures wondering if caster mount set would this lure be right on this kind of set I'm talking about a caster mount set yeah anytime guys you've got a caster smelling lure no matter what other type of black magic concoctions and stuff that a lure maker puts in there for a lot of different reasons, if the overwhelming odor of that thing 
is caster caster mounds are a very good set to use with it i mean that's a safe set to use with it without getting too crazy and once you start playing around with a lure you know if you're if you get someone's lure and you're not sure about it don't be afraid to ask the lure maker about it you know caster mound set but once you get it out there play around with it a little bit different ways and you might find some applications that maybe even the lure maker hasn't thought about when it comes to his own lure because maybe he just doesn't really do a whole lot out in the field with it so he doesn't really know but you know like caster mound sets you know you, you can make the full set with it you can mound up the the dead leaves and stuff like that like we've talked about in the past in the mud and or you can uh what i normally do with lure like that if it's a hot looking trail i just put it on a stick and kind of you know sling it up there a couple of feet beyond the the water line make whatever set i'm doing and go on but any type of caster mound set will work and if you have any type if you start running low and you're out in the woods smell some of your other lures that you have in your bag as long as you know what caster smells like i don't have a whole lot of lures personally that you can do this with but i know from smelling other lure makers there some of them are like crazy heavy on caster and they could be for fox or coyotes or cats or whatever it is if you smell the overwhelming caster coming out of that bottle and even though it's got some other stuff it'll probably still work for beaver in a pinch you know the the other odors may or may not actually you know turn the beaver on for you but the caster is still going to get him there because I do believe from a lot of the, the studies and especially the way people have studied dogs for, for drugs and, and gunpowder and explosives and stuff like that, animals have a sense of separating odors. They seem to be able to do that. Like, you know, you open up a bottle of cat collector, you may be able to go, well, I think there's this and maybe this. But an animal seems to be able to have the skill in his nose i mean he's not going to know what the technical name we call him is but to separate those odors out and you know an example for that is you know a lot of drug dealers will, will try to hide something and they'll put uh, dope in a coffee can with coffee then they'll wrap it up with detergent then they'll put that you know and then they'll put some type of perfume or herb or something around that thing and they try to seal it up in an ammo can and hide it under their car now to me or you smelling that we're not going to smell the dope in the middle of that but a dog can separate those odors out and they can definitely smell that and i believe animals can do the same thing i think that's why you know you you when, when a lure is put together the way that they work it's not just one odor it's several odors and it can lead the animal down the path of where you want them to go because they will smell these different odors such as sulfides and stuff and sexual stuff for coyotes and different things like that but yeah with enrager great lure it does enrage them uh, so you know you can use it on a caster mount or just put it up in there sometimes you know if you've got the right choke down areas you can just smear it on a tree and put a trap or a snare in front of it you can rock on like that no problem whatsoever now the next question um that I have is is one that's interesting and it's gonna seem kind of weird but I think it's, it's a cool observation now this is from Jesse and he asked me a lot of times on stuff for stuff on trapping radio but this this is an interesting one 
I hope you're tearing up the fur. I noticed uh, something today that maybe you've noticed. I've noticed radishes actually from a food plot underneath a cedar tree about 30 yards from the plot. So what he's seeing is radishes that's been pulled out of a food plot and carried under a cedar tree. I know deer sometimes carry these roots in their mouth, but they normally eat it quickly. But underneath this tree to be uh, appear to be a trail. Not sure if it was a coon trail. Maybe it was a groundhog, but brassicas have a lot of starch and lots of sugar, which coons might munch on. So I was wondering, on these deer farms you trap on, have you ever noticed deers eating brassicas? I mean, raccoons eating brassicas, or trails leading to brassicas. I've seen uh, coyotes eat corn cobs, so maybe it was a canine. I don't know, just curious. Um, Jesse, that... I haven't personally seen where raccoons are going to be eating brassicas. I have seen where, well, you know, I take that back. I don't know. I've, I've, I've seen where I think they have pulled turnips out of a food plot before, and I'll see scattered on a deer trail going down next to a creek, and I definitely caught raccoon off that trail. I'm, I have to assume that the, the it was the raccoons that, that were doing that. But I have seen, without a doubt, where somebody planted a bunch of, uh, they looked like uh, uh, Detroit red blood beets in, in a food plot before. And th those are like crazy amount of sugar. And um, I mean, I like eating them myself. But those definitely got tore up by raccoons. I mean, they absolutely got destroyed by the raccoons. They almost treated them like sweet corn when the sweet corn was ripe. And the, the thing about the, when it comes to brassicas and it comes to trapping, like I, I use a thing called a tillage radish when I'm doing my food plots now because it actually tills in the ground. And it puts this... Um, it grows a radish that it probably weighs two pounds. It's like two feet long. Some of them are close to two and a half feet long. There's, they're as big around as a Coke bottle. Now, when those things are at a certain stage and they're growing, I've played around it and ate them and they're, they're actually pretty sweet, even though it's a radish. It is peppery, but it is sweet. And I've actually wondered the same thing. But here's what happens to a lot of brassicas once you get a hard freeze, which you'd need to keep this in mind for what I'm talking about. When they rot, when, when they get a hard freeze, they rot really quick. And one of the things that I've read about this stuff with food crops is they lose the sugar content somehow really quick. When, when, once they hit that rotten stage and then it turns into a very, it, it's, it's a stinky peppery, um, smell because I've got a bunch in my yard and me and my wife couldn't figure out what this stink was for about five or six days and I finally figured it out. So, you know, before they get the freeze and before rotten, I don't see why a raccoon couldn't do that. It, to me, it'd be an interesting thing for you to put a trail cam up if, if they're not already destroyed yet or maybe next year just to see because it, it could, you know, that could be Something that, uh, you know, in a pinch or something, you could slice three or four of them things up and, you know, drop them down in your, you know, your, your Freedom Brand Dog Proof Traps or your Dukes or whatever you're using underneath the pan if that is something they're very interested in. 
you know, I think that's a, a very good deal. I've seen the same thing you have on the corn. I've seen uh, deer, I mean, uh, coyotes eating corn that people put out for for deer. I mean, they eat it, you know, so, and I'm sure it's because of the carbohydrates and stuff in there, but they do. But I, this, this had me thinking, guys, if you want to have honey holes for raccoons and fox and coyotes and stuff like that, I'm going to tell you a very cheap way that you can do this and you and if as long as you don't open your mouth about what you're doing and tell your buddies about it and this that and the other you you most people today because they're so i mean they're doing good to know an oak tree from a pine tree when they're out walking even hunters as long as you don't say what you're doing most people will never figure this out um and i've i've done this not to the extent that I'm getting ready, ready to tell you about, but I've definitely got a few places that I have transplanted some persimmon trees. Now, if you live in a place that has persimmons, um, you, you already know raccoons, possums, fox, deer, they will sit off and they will wait till they hear the thud of one of them things hitting the ground. And the cool thing about the persimmons they don't fall off the tree till after really really hard frost and normally you've got a a good 45 days to 60 days after that point till they become really high in sugar which it takes the frost to do and they hit the ground and animals congregate around that waiting for those persimmons so if you're if you're in an area that you're going to be trapping like where you live I'm going to explain something that's a term that, that a lot of guys use in permaculture and not permaculture, but in, in, in more of out-of-the-way agriculture. It's called guerrilla gardening. And, and what they do is, you know, they, they live in a city or they live in a suburb and they got all these crazy laws and, and you know, they got people on boards that don't want anything, you know, planted unless it's, you know, ornamental or whatever. So these people, what they do is they will graft edible pears onto Bradford pears and stuff like that, you know, uh, because they'll work. Or they will graft edible pears onto crab apples, which a lot of people use for decoration. And then a lot of them will go and they will make these little seed balls where you just take, you take clay and you wrap a seed in it and you go down a, a road and you let that thing dry and you go down the road and then where you think it would be convenient to go harvest something, they will sit there from the road and they'll throw them like grenades to where they want to go. Now, the way these little clay balls work is the rain will get on the clay and eventually melt it down. But the clay, because it doesn't run away that quick, is enough covering on the seed and they can grow these things. So they don't even have to physically be somewhere to plant something. And the reason I'm saying this if you're out scouting and you, and you were wanted to really, I mean, have some rocking raccoon and fox and coyote locations that doesn't make any sense to any other trapper. So when, when you're going to set these up, you're not going to have any competition because it makes no rhyme or reason to another trapper to even look there. 
you know, it could be a place like for raccoons that's, you know, 50, 75 yards away from a body of water, away from a bridge, that unless somebody was a true outdoorsman and knew the tree from what it was before, you know, the fruit and stuff was on it, they would never know it was in the area. And what I've done around here, especially when I was doing beaver trapping, there's a couple of swamps down in Marion County that, that there was a monster persimmon tree. And one of the falls I was sitting down there, and this was before I got into the, the nursery side of stuff on, on, on growing, you know, plants. But I, I, would, I happened to go by that tree and there was like 50 and 60 of these little seedlings that were growing up from underneath the tree from the seeds that fell off of the fruit in the winter. And so I'm sitting there, the, the ground was soft, I've got a shovel, so I just moved those around that swamp. And now those two swamps are absolutely persimmon groves. And they're not even swamps anymore because the people that had it at the time were duck hunters. They, they kept with these water level or things inside these swamps. They were connected about a mile apart through a pipe. Someone else bought the property. It's uh, one of the swamps is right on the edge of the, uh, one of the rivers, I'll say that. One of the rivers around here. And it's easy access to get to with a canoe. But I know those are in there and every single raccoon within five miles knows the same thing. So does every gray fox, red fox, and coyote. Deer, uh, of course you got your possums and your skunks and everything like that too. But what I did by transplanting those trees is I made such massive honey holes of animals that it is insane. If I go down there and I really set those heavy, the catch I can make off of those two places, you know, between the fox and the coon is pretty amazing, pretty quick. You know, it didn't take me a lot of time to do that. Now, you may be saying, well, I don't know where persimmon trees get seedings. Guys, get online if you're interested in doing this. And, and to me, I think this is a cool thing about trapping that, that most people don't do. You can set your whole lineup in a local area where you know what's going on and nobody else does. And this is being very strategic in your trapping. You can get online and order persimmon seeds. You could probably talk to people on trapping forums and stuff, people that have persimmons in the yard, they'll send them to you. They grow really, really easy. You know, and you could you can directly transplant them wherever you want them, or you could grow them in little bitty pots and as soon as they're a foot tall, you know, in that net, you grow them out, they'll be about a foot tall in the fall, go plant them out because the roots will grow in the winter and you don't have to worry about watering them. And then you, you know, three or four years down the road, you're gonna start getting persimmons on those trees because it's a pretty fast acting tree. But think about what that would mean. If you're, because you know, like a lot of guys I've seen that are trapping on uh, like wildlife areas and, and stuff like that and you've got your road systems and there's a one or two creeks down in there and they get hammered by trappers because everybody knows they're there. What if you were to go spend $20 on, on uh, persimmon seeds, which is probably be a couple hundred, and you were to plant those out away from where most trappers go and you don't show your buddies about it, you don't talk about it, you don't you don't take pictures of it, you don't do anything, because this is strategic stuff we're talking about. 
And then all of a sudden, when those things start putting on fruit, and you, yeah, you're going to have to wait three, four, five years. But when they start putting on fruit, you've got the pick of the litter of all the critters that's around you because they're going to be coming to that. Now, if you're really far north, regular persimmons may not work, but there are some... Um, some persimmon trees that if you learn to graft and we're not going to get into that but it's really simple just get on youtube you can see how to do it you can grow your persimmons out with the seeds go in in the fall or the spring excuse me go in in the spring know what those seeds are you can mark them with flagging or whatever no one's going to pay attention to it and then if you were to grow a couple of the of uh, japanese persimmons that are a lot more hardy than the, the you know the regular persimmon you could then have a tree that will pr produce persimmons for next to nothing because you can you can graft off a big tree get a lot of these little ends that you go graft on your persimmons that have the base that'll grow and then they'll still put on fruit even in cold weather there's all kind of fruit and 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 stuff like that that you could do if i was into deer hunting if you didn't think if I was trapping on public ground, I'd be popping in some chestnuts off in a far corner where no one, you know, where the chances of people finding them are pretty low. That's exactly what I'd be doing. All you're doing is putting everything in your advantage. And, you know, you, you, can, you can figure out there's a lot of fruits if you start doing that hold on really late. Now, there's another one that you can do this with, but it'd be more expensive. It's a uh, jujube which actually acts like a date and it stays on the tree and it and it'll fall off you know december january critters tear those up because they're like candy dates falling out of the sky you know and that's a, that's that's kind of a, a an unusual thing that maybe just maybe if if a few guys were to start doing that you know think of the advantage they would have over their competition because it's something that once you do it and as long as you know where it is if you're 25 years old when you plant these trees out you know on the section of river that someone's not going to see or just far enough off the bank they can't see it from a boat and there's no reason for them to you know think that one spot over anything else if you're 25 you know, when you're 28 to you're 70, you've got the upper hand forever. So a little bit of effort up front could get you a lot of return in, in the downside. Plus, you'll probably find out that you'll be sneaking in there and getting some of these after frost too because they're actually pretty good. So, you know, that's why I thought this was such an interesting question. You could do the same thing with, um, if, you know, I would test out maybe some turnips and some um, brassicas because you can get those seeds so cheap as you're out scouting in the early fall you could just sling them to where you want them and once they start coming up and the leaves start dropping those will, will plant out and those take about 60 days or so to you know really you know before they're they're on the way out and they will reseed themselves as long as no one picks the radishes. So if, if, if any of them make it, they'll be reseeding it, itself. And you'll know, like on the beats with the raccoons, you will have that there for years. Maybe come through every now and then and throw some more seeds down. So just a crazy thought from, you know, about having an unfair advantage on your your competition. Because there was a, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish it with this. There's a place up on, uh, up on the mountain behind me 
that it, when we used to could trap it just with a permit, it used to be a, a timber company and now they lease it out. There was two hollows that had persimmon trees in the middle of pine groves with no water around it whatsoever. The last place anybody would think about raccoons. But there were days that I could go in there with snares, because this was way before I had the advantages of the Freedom Brand dog proof traps or anything. You know, any type of equipment like that was unrealistic, but I could go in there in December, early January, and the coon trails would be so obvious, it'd almost be like uh, Iowa, because every animal there would go in to try to find one of these, you know, basically pieces of, of candy that would fall off a tree and I could I could go in there and somewhere like Tennessee and I had days of catching uh, 15 to 25 raccoons a day on you know especially with the once those things started falling down off of knowing where those groves are at and I never saw another trapper in there ever because it didn't make any sense I came across it because I was looking at the draws for for bobcats and then then I started noticing all these persimmon trees and I just kind of put that in my memory and then I could go back to that forever. But how cool would it be if I'd have had the forethought, you know, 20 years ago to plant out these groves all over the place, all over the place. Man, I, in a place that, you know, we don't have a ton of raccoons, you know, this is not some place you're gonna come and catch 500 or 1,000 raccoons. But with something like that, if raccoons were high, think about the advantage that would be when everybody else is playing down on the creek and I've got them all sucked up in the persimmon patch. Just, just an idea that I have because it's, uh, I like growing stuff and I like catching stuff and when the two meet, it just gets really cool to me. So we're gonna go to this other question and um, it's gonna be hard for me to read. I've never seen an email sent in this format. Uh, it's like one great big long line, so I'm, I'm having to move my screen, so uh, just bear with me. Hi Clint, thanks for doing the radio show. I've been trapping for several years now, and I started out beaver muskrat and coon trapping. Somehow evolved in a long liner, bobcat, fox, and, and uh, coyotes. Needless to say, I've lost touch with the water trapping side of things. And I used to really love, that, that I used to really love. I like to get back into the water side, but only concentrate on beaver. Okay, let me get back to the other section. Okay, where I live, there are three main rivers with a small tributary that hold beaver. Two of the rivers are very rocky. The, the other has mud banks. Most of the tributaries are mixed between the two. The rivers would have access, uh, the rivers would have to be accessed by canoe. There are hydrologic uh, dams, meaning the water level is controlled by hydroelectric dams, which means one point in the day, the water level will be at full crest. And then the, ne and the next, it may be four feet lower. I found that my situation here fits many other waterways across the nation. I think this idea of radio show will help not only myself, but, but others with cir uh, circumstances. So let me, let me get back to the beginning of this thing. This is a crazy format. I don't even know how this, this does this. Oh, 
Okay, the idea for the radio show is how do you run a long line for beaver using snares? And the show would be good talking about snares for beaver. Where do you place them, cable size, and loop? What is a good system to long line beaver with snares? Kill poles, anchor methods, uh, snares compared to body grips for a long line. How to maintain your snare line for beaver and to avoid other fur bears like otter may not be legal to take them with snares. What do you do with your catch on the line and while trapping out in a small canoe or a boat? Uh, and what length of time should a beaver run a line for? Okay. That's a lot of questions. But this is one of those things I've, I've got a ton of experience in because when I was used to trap for Marion County all those years, we, we have a, uh, very similar to this. We've got very rocky creeks. We've got very muddy creeks. We've got bigger creeks and a lot of tributaries. And, um, you know, on the easy stuff off the road, it was pretty easy. But to really get the numbers down on the farmers and a lot of the, the farms would be where you couldn't drive in because of the crops and stuff like that, but they'd have something. I spent a tremendous amount of time in a canoe. A tremendous amount of time in a canoe. I feel more comfortable in a canoe actually than I do a boat. That's how much time I spent in them. So, uh, and, and I had some just awesome memories of day after day of being out in that canoe. There's also some miserable memories that I want to talk about. When you're when you're thinking about long line and beaver, most of the time, the the first thing that you need to be realistic about unless you have hired skinners or someone that's gonna be like a gopher to go along with you, like uh, Montreal Valentine had down in Louisiana, he had a, a guy that he'd catch a beaver and he'd just, you know, as soon as it was dispatched, he'd start dragging it back. I mean, you know, it was like uh, he paid him or some, something, but he was like a gopher all the time. When you really get into somewhere, if you have beaver and you're gonna start running long lines for beaver, you can make the system so efficient that you get yourself in trouble. And, and in some places you can get yourself in trouble and try not to, and there's nothing you can do about it. One of the times I was trapping down in Louisiana, the, the, the way that the, the bounty was, I wasn't supposed to be in the river. Well, the guy staying with had a boat and I, I kept driving by all these rivers. I'm trapping the sloughs and stuff off the rivers. The second or third year I was down there, I finally got him. I finally just like, I just, I just want to see one night. I just want one night. I won't even, and I didn't. I didn't count the beaver tails towards the bounty because that was the agreement that I had with the, uh, that I had with the, the parish. And, so I didn't keep those and I actually did to prove the point because uh, if you ever get into bounding a beaver, uh, fraud is such a big deal that uh, I know who that is, Mr. Chip. Um, I would actually, I kept those beaver tails and I actually marked them and kept them in the freezer. So if someone ever said anything to me about catching them in the, the, I could show them, I didn't give them the tails. So, you know, if you're never gonna be in that situation, I know this is off topic, 
go way out of your way to be a board bub on, on the beaver bounty tails because they're looking for fraud because they get hit with fraud all the time. And, and part of the reason, until they didn't do that program anymore that I always had an open door is they found out pretty quickly I was not going to cheat them under any circumstances. And that meant a lot to them. But what happened is I was looking at these this river and, and I'm like, I just want to see what it's like one day. So we went out in an hour and a half in a boat and I put out 45 snares on what looked like active slides. And it was only an hour and a half. We didn't even go that far. The next day we went out and checked and pulled the snares as we went. Now here's where you can get in trouble with a long line on beaver if you have beaver and you're very efficient with a, with a tool. We had 31 or 32 beaver out of 45 snares and something that took me an hour and a half. So if I would have ran an eight or 10 hour line like you would normally think when you're out of state you were doing, what would that be in the amount of beaver on that first check? 150, 200 beaver? I mean, it'd been a hell of a pitcher, but you couldn't have put them in the boat. And if you started skinning them, by the time you got to the end of them, the alligators done tore into a bunch of them. And, and so you've got to keep realistic view. So when I'm looking at long lining on beaver, it's not so much how many I can catch, it's how many I can handle. So then I try to make a judgment call off of that. And, and it's not always easy to do, or it, and, it, and it's, it's kind of like a very loose art that there's, there's nothing, you know, there's no formula for this whatsoever. You just got to use your common sense. I would rather be short five or six beaver than be over 20 beaver, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Just because of the dealing with the, the beaver, skinning the beaver, putting the beaver up, grinding the beaver meat, taking out the casters, all that takes time. So, you know, to me, I would never, ever wanted to do on purpose uh, when I was younger my goal was to never get over, you know, between 30 and 35 beaver in a day, which was a tremendous amount of work. I was happier if I could stay in the 18 to 22 range that, that I could, I could deal with a beaver, you know, still have some sanity left and still go about. There are places like in Louisiana and even here when I first started that, you know, you, you start catching 30 and 40, you know, beaver in a 24 hour period you're not a trapper anymore you're a fur handler which is the goal i get that but if you're doing it by yourself you're going to get yourself in trouble so the first thing that i would say on a long line for beaver you need to be honest with yourself about what you're willing and what you can physically handle when it comes to the beaver now all that aside so now we're going to go back and not into the cautious mode let's get back into the let's go out and skirt scorch the earth mode i had i had a few ways that when i was in a canoe that i could i, I could effectively catch all the beaver that i wanted to catch now on the on rocks i would have to i would have to use snares that i would you know go to a tree and I would cable off to that tree. And well, let's back up, let's start with the snares. Okay, to me, the perfect beaver snare, hands down without a question, 
is 564 1 by 19 cable not 7 by 7 but 1 by 19 and I want the snare somewhat on the shorter side because I want to have that where I can add extensions it's very different than I say for coyotes where I want a very long snare so I can reach anything I want to when it comes to beaver you want to keep them out of as much entanglement as you can because the more entangled a beaver gets the more fur damage you get and the less the product is worth when you go to sell it so I'm very cautious with beaver when it comes to how I hook them up but if it's really rocky there's not a lot you can do except hook it to a tree but I don't want that beaver I'm trying to pick a place on that trail or where it's coming out of the water I can hook it to a root or something like that that they're not going to get into a bunch of of saplings and stuff where because on the cable it will start uh, acting like a tourniquet and you'll get these bruising and then when it kinks up it'll start pulling out hair and stuff like that so I want to give the beaver as much free range in movement as possible. Now on the muddy banks, what I did was I had a, a picket system. And this is one of the things that I, I go into detail and I have a picture for in the Beaver Blitzkrieg book. But if you take a, a wood picket, and I'm talking just like I would go down to Home Depot. I did not use oak, even though they were probably better. But the weight of the oak and the canoe was a problem. So I would just go to, to Home Depot or Lowe's and I would get those bundles. They come in like 15 a bundle or 12 or something. And I would want the ones that were, you know, 12, 14 inches long. Not the really thin ones, but the ones that were probably three quarters of an inch thick. And I would come home and I would make those into uh, a stake and a stabilizer. <coughs> and the snare would be hooked to it all at one time. So... If you go and you get one of these pickets, lay it out in front of you, about three inches from the base of the bottom where the point is, drill a hole that's just a touch bit bigger than your cable is. And then up towards the top, I will drill two holes that'll be just a fuzz bit bigger than it is on the um, number nine wire that I'm using for snare support. If, if you've got clay mud and it's not real loose, like what we have here, if you have soil on the river, it's going to be loose. It's going to be a lot of organic matter and sand. In places that I've been where there's clay, you don't have to drill two holes. You can drill up towards the top. You can then take your, um, your number nine wire hole and move it up about two inches from where the bottom hole is. Drill a hole and that's going to be for your support wire so I have these these holes in the stake depending on where I'm going the bottom hole I would run the snare through the hole I would put a washer that was bigger than the hole and then I would double you know put a, a, a either a nut or a, 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 a stop but not a single stop it would be one of the the you know the double stops that are longer that's what would hold the snare to the picket at the bottom then you know and make sure you put that washer on there because a beaver can pull you know a aluminum stop through there sometimes so that's what the washers for then the, on the snare I want these pretty short I want it to where 
I've got a pigtail or, or a basic piece of cable coming off the bottom and then it's going to run into a trap swivel. Not a snare swivel, but a trap swivel. And then that swivel is going to be about, if you set the, the stake down on the table, you could pull it up maybe 8 inches, 9 inches above the top of the stake and that's where that swivel goes. And it's a trap swivel now, double swivel, not a snare swivel. Even though a snare swivel is better than no swivel, this is this will really help you with fur damage. Then I've got my loop end, which is you know again the 564 1x19 cable that's got a whammy or a support collar that I can hook into my number nine wire. And I'm using most of the time at that time I was using slim locks or the BMI micro locks. But since then, the uh, lock I would definitely do on this would be the uh, snare shop's got a, I think it's a, just called micro lock. Pretty much any lock as long as it's fast and smooth will work. And that loop, will, the biggest it can open up is about 10 inches. That's the very biggest. So, you know, I've got my snare hooked to my picket. I've got it running through the bottom hole. If I'm in sandy, loose soil, I've got the two holes at the top and I will run the number nine wire through one of those on the bottom end. I'm just going to pick what is the bottom end of the number nine wire, run it through one side, bend it down through the other. So that's always secure on that stake. And then I'm going to have it where it'll come off about 12, 14 inches. Then I would take the snare and I would wrap it around the the cable i'd close the loop and just wrap it loosely around that the the picket itself then i would take the number nine wire and bend it down and pin the snares to its thing so i've got an all-in-one functioning unit the reason you don't want to put your snare at the top of those pine form pickets is a beaver will break it but if you've got it 14 inches in the ground all the extra pressure of the sole you don't have the breakage plus if it does break, it'll turn sideways and act like a disposable. And I, and I think from memory, I may be off one or two numbers here, but I can only think from memory of having three of those a beaver ever break. So that percentage is pretty good. So I've got this one unit and I could, I could in the canoe, I could put them in milk crates and I could get, I don't know, a couple dozen in each milk crate and I would carry you know, three or four milk crates of these, depending on how many snares I wanted to carry. On the mud banks, the reason this was so slick is I could take it out, move the number nine wire, just let the, the, the cable of the snare kind of unravel. Then I could beat this thing down right next to the trail. The number nine wire would be rigid because either it would be at the bottom of the snare if it was for clay and the ground would push it together to be very rigid or where it's soft ground like around here I had to weave it back and forth it'd be rigid through friction I could I could take my hammer beat that in the ground open the loop move it to where I wanted and pretty much be done with the set I didn't have to go look for sticks and I didn't have to you know cut anything because it was it was all speed and not so much speed before making the set that's not the point guys the speed is you find the best set and then you don't take any time putting that set in because you've got a system in place just to get it done. 
when you're in a canoe or a boat or anything, no matter what you do, there's going to be some looking around you're going to have to do. You're going to have to judge if you got five slides, which one is the most active right now. Stuff like that. Which one can you see the toe marks in? Everything like that. So that's, I want to, to spend my time getting the best place to put the snare, but I want to have a, <coughs> a system in place where I don't have to spend any time putting the set in. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm making that clear there. So that's the system I did. Back when I was doing a lot of canoe, we didn't have fiberglass. Uh, the kill pole fiberglass thing, as far as I know, nobody was doing it. I think you could get away with that. Today, you could carry 48 or 60 snares, which doesn't sound like a lot on Facebook when people talk about numbers, but you put out 60 or 48 good snares on good locations, you know, you're probably going to have 20, 30 beaver the next day if it's a decent movement of beaver that night. So you don't need to have out hundreds. It's better to take your, you know, pick the best ones instead of putting them everywhere. That, that was, that's always been my, my way with beaver anyway. And plus, if it's, a, if it's somewhere you're going to be trapping for a long time, you don't want to wipe out all the colonies. You want to leave breeding stock. You're a fur farmer. When I say organic free-range wild fur farmer, that's what I mean. You're managing the natural resource, which is the beaver. If you kill them all, you're not managing them. You're just you're acting in, in a heathen mindset of short-term thinking only. So if I pick the best spots and there's safe, you know, five or six beaver in a colony that I think are by, you know, just judging, I may want to take two or three and then I don't want to catch anymore. And then I'll, I will, I'll pull that up. But every year those, the colony will still be there. Cause you know, when I was up shooting the stuff for F and T with Jeff, a lot of the colonies that he's trapped before people would either come in after him and he would leave beaver and they would kill all the beaver and then it, it's it's kind of I mean it's sad in a way because that that resource that could be there for you know decades is gone and you got to wait for something else to move in or something like that and if you manage that stuff it's so much better but that's the system I would use on the um, the mud bank now on the rocky banks what I would do is I would I would have to then cable off to a tree be very picky because I don't want a lot of entanglement. And when I'm using my pickets, I could then pick a place on that trail normally where a beaver couldn't get caught up in stuff. So there'd be very little damage at all to the beaver from the snare. Now to anchor the snare for that, I would always have wire with me. And if it's real rocky, a lot of times all you need to do with a, with a, a piece of you know, 11 gauge or 9 gauge wire, it's kind of cram that in between the rocks or you can you can make like a little base. This is what I would normally do. Is if you can imagine, like sit your wire out on a on a table, and then bend one end of it back maybe six inches, and then bend that at a ninety degrees. You you've got where you know you've got a long piece of wire, and then you've got it where you can almost set it up on the table and it'll stand there. Well, for a beaver snare, if you if you cut that and bend that real quick, you can set that either on soil or on another rock. Then you can pin that with a rock. 
and that's enough to hold a snare most of the time. I mean, it needs to be a big enough rock that it's not going to fall over, of course, but that's what I would have to do a lot. Sometimes I would wire off from a tree or a bush or something that was there. The problem with that is most of the time it's not there where you need it. That's the reason I like having systems in that I'm not regulated to what nature's telling me I need to do in a situation as far as my system goes. I want a system that when nature tells me where to put something, I can just put it in. So that, that that's the way I would do it. Loops on beaver. Now, if you're in a place um, that gets a lot of trapping, the snare size that I would normally use was about eight and a half to nine inches. But if you go somewhere like Louisiana or Mississippi, places that, that for generations the beaver have been running wild, those beaver are going to average in the 40 to 50 pound range. I'm, I mean average. Big, big beaver. A nine inch loop on those, you'll have a lot of knockdowns. So it's going to be up to you to know where you're at and what you're seeing. So if you see a lot of knockdowns, open that loop up a little bit. And a lot of times you'll find out if you're like somewhere from Pennsylvania where there's so much pressure. The, you know, a big beaver up there is not that common because they have a lot of pressure. You get in a, you know, backward swamp in Mississippi, you may have great granddad, great great granddad and his dad, you know, in the same thing. And, you know, that's why you can catch, you know, a 60 pound beaver is not that too far out of the, the ordinary. And I'm talking true 60 pounds, not just this fill 60 pounds, big beaver. So you've got to know where that is as far as your loop size. But normally like around here, about a nine inch loop, I wanna have it where it's a good, you know, inch off the ground. Because when you watch how a beaver goes through a snare, he actually st steps over the bottom of the snare. And when, his, when, it, when, it, when it gets behind his front shoulder, I want the, the fur and the body weight when it taps it with a good loaded quick snare like a 564 1x19, it just closes on him. I don't want the beaver to have to drag the snare down the trail to hopefully it closes and stuff like that. I treat it the same as I do for a bobcat or a coyote. I want the snare to fire. I don't want it just to, to, to roll out through there and hopefully he's still in it when it closes all the way. So, you know, keep that in mind. Now dealing with the water, now see this is where I don't know what your laws are. See in Tennessee, we can't set body grips on dry ground. They have to touch the water. That's what our law says. So I can have a, a, a 330 in the water with, with one quarter inch of water from touching the bottom of the jaw and I'm legal. If I move it one inch up, out of that water, I'm illegal. But snares, at least here in Tennessee and in most places, you don't have that rule. Now, I do think there's a couple of states that say you gotta have your snare completely submerged, which is insane, but that, that's, that's what happens when lawmakers that don't trap pass laws. So if you got a place that's got fluctuating water, which we do, I mean, you know, you know think Tennessee, um, Valley, Tennessee Valley Authority, Corps of Engineers, we've got dams everywhere. And this is one thing that drove Newt Sterling crazy is because, you know, what was, you know, two inches in the water one day would be four foot underwater the next and two foot out of the water the next day. And it drove him crazy because he was used to working off tides. Well, this is not that way. So I know exactly what you're talking about.
and the way that I got around that was the snares and I would go I would try to make a judgment call of where the highest point of the water normally is now you get a flood you're, you're still gonna be screwed but on a normal day if it goes up and down two feet well wherever that center line is I want to be three feet above it and that's where I would always put the snare so I would take the water out of the equation instead of trying to figure out how to do it now I know there's guys that come up with floats and all this type stuff to do um, you know where it can go up and down in front of the slide and I, I've seen it where they've got two fiberglass poles and almost like a you know where it can just float up and down almost like a um, well, then think a dock, pretty much something like that. You know, in perfect weather and the perfect conditions, and it's just flowing up and down, and you're not getting leaves wrapped around stuff, and the current's not pushing on it. I think that'll work just fine. But you're better off if you've got a problem, figure out what the problem is, and just don't let it be the problem. So if your water's going up and down, get out of that. And if a beaver's going up a slide. And you've got lure up there and it's already an active slide per se having it three feet off the water is not going to make any difference he's already going up it there's a better chance he's not doing whatever he's doing within the first three four feet anyway he's going up and he's cutting trees he's going to someone's corner he's doing something like that so it's not going to hurt you but just totally take the water out of the equation and once you do that now you now it's, it's not a big deal you know what the water is going to be doing now when, how do how do you handle beaver I had um, you know when I was in a canoe I'm normally normally in hip boots because I hop in and out of the thing even though I'm a big fat redneck when it comes to canoes I can move around very well in there because I've, I've done it a lot so I can hop in and out and this that, and the other and the hip boots make it easier when I go to chest waders it's not as smooth and I don't like them as much but uh, you, you that's just a decision you have to make but the reason I'm telling you this is I made a little platform off of some type of uh, one of those little plastic white tables that you you know like you can leave out in the rain and it doesn't make any difference to it and a small section of it's not that heavy and they make them in different sizes so what i did is i found one of the smaller ones that could, could collapse on itself and it had legs on one side and they were extendable so what i could do with that is i just put a uh i screwed a part of a piece of pipe so on the front or the back of the boat i could take it up to the bank i could sit i could just stand in the water like up to my my knees which would put the platform about good working height for me and i could set the beaver on that little table and i would skin them and you know very quick at skinning beaver and if you're not trust me after the first thousand or so beaver they get pretty easy but I could skin those beaver out because you can only carry so many beaver in a canoe. You can only, dang, you can only carry so many beaver in a boat before you get in trouble. And I've never done this, but after talking with, uh, when, when Blackie was uh, still around and he was talking about coon, he had a system where his wife, where 
at certain bridges, he would he would take the coon and cachet those bad boys next to these bridges, and his wife would come along and pick those up throughout the day. Now, if you've got a partner or a wife or a girlfriend or another trapper or or somebody like that or you know a neighbor kid, you could pay a few dollars or whatever. That that's the easiest way because you can spend more time trapping. So you can figure out drop-off points either where the road or the creek comes close to a road. You can have a place that you could, you know, like under the, you know, under some leaves or whatever or tarp there that you could just slide those beaver and, and somebody comes by and picks them up. And when you get there at the end of the day, you've got them at your, your camp. You know, that, that's one, one ob obvious way to do that. But I skinned most of the time when I was out doing that. Or I would, I never had anybody to pick any beaver up, but if I would come close to a bridge and I was getting really full, I would just kick them out on the bank, put a couple pieces of brush over it, make sure they were in the shadows so someone looking over a bridge just wouldn't see a pile of stuff sitting there. And I would come back and pick them up during the day. But the skinning to me made a lot more sense. I wouldn't be able to keep the meat when I was doing that. Uh, I would keep the caster. So what I would do is I would I would get the 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 hide off the beaver. I would cut out the casters, put the caster inside the beaver hide, and then I would have a couple of milk crates, and I would just put those beaver in there. They're going to be wet, you know. They're you're not going to have dry beaver probably when you're doing this. So you're going to have to dry them out when you get home. But that took a lot of the weight off of the canoe for me doing that. I, I had times that uh you know the beaver catch does too well and what i would then do is i would take the beaver and i'd find a deep pool that had current that was flowing over it and i would i would take you know if i needed to get you know five or six eight beaver out of the canoe so for i don't sink i would wire their feet together in one big pile and then i would find a rock and then i would hook it like a like a, a slide rig would be and I would drop those down in that water. And the reason I wanted to drop them under the water, for one, it kept them cool. But second, you didn't have raccoons and, and feral dogs and coyotes and stuff screwing with them before you could get back to them. And, and on some trips, I would have three or four of these caches. And a beaver, even here in January or February, a beaver will stay good underwater for three or four days, no problem. So if I had a, a slack day on catching, I would pull up one of these caches and get the beaver out of there that way. I wouldn't skin them before I did that because then you then you hardly ever can't get it dry again. But th that's how I would handle the fur. But I would try to not have so much fur that it was an issue all the time. Now, one thing you need to keep in mind when you're doing this, um, we, we did a uh, interview with Blackie about canoes. I suggest you go back and listen to that. And... He talks about his troll motor setups and stuff like that. If you're going all down current, you may not need that, but I would still want to have a troller motor at least with one battery. I would always have rain gear and uh, a poncho and what that was for because when you're setting these lines out, guys, you're always thinking about the perfect fall day or the winter day and this, that, and the other. Well, if it was a morning like this morning with this storm front going all the way from you know, Louisiana to Canada, if I would have been out on a canoe this morning, I would have been one miserable drowned puppy. And what I used to do when you would get caught in one of those rainstorms that was just our lightning, a lot of lightning, 
I would actually pull the canoe up to the bank and then I could roll the canoe up. I'd take the stuff out, just set it right there. And then I could roll the canoe up onto a tree and, and then use a piece of wire. So it can almost be like if the wind's coming on a 45 degree angle from the north, I put it on the northern side and then I could I could take the poncho and, and you know look up a military poncho if you don't know what that is. You could use a tarp. Uh, and then I could drape that down and then I could get out of the weather at least for 30, 40 minutes while the monsoon's coming on. Because in a canoe, you've got to think about hypothermia. And I, I got in hypothermia a couple of times. So I'm a little sensitive to that just because no matter how big, strong, or manly you are, when you get wet and it's cold, you've got to have a plan. And inside the boat, I would always have the heat tabs, which luckily come in aluminum foil so they don't get wet. And you can start a fire with those things with dang near anything. Wet wood doesn't make any difference. 2,500 degrees, 15 minutes of dry out anything. And you could start a fire if you had to. And I never started a fire on the side of the creek as long as I could get out of that, out of the wind, out of the water with a rain suit on, I could let it pass and go about my business. But you need to think about stuff like that when you're coming. If you know that there's a, a, the rain's getting ready to start and there's a bridge up ahead, do the hobo thing, get under the bridge, let it, let the, the big part of it pass over and, and then go about doing your thing. So you got to think about the, the hypothermia when you're talking about a, a canoe like that. Now, all those things are kind of what first come to mind to me when I'm thinking about trapping these, the, these rivers. Now, how long should you keep a line out? That's going to depend a lot on the beaver population that you're at and how active they are at the time. Uh, there's no really good way to say <coughs> one way or the other. If I'm in a high beaver population, I'm probably only going to have one snare line out if I'm going strictly for beaver two to three days at the most. Most of the time it's going to be 48 hours. And the reason for that, if I'm thinking long lining, which means I think you're thinking about uh, big numbers, every time you go through that line and you start catching more and more beaver, your percentages go down. And you're better off, even as you go, after four days, say you caught, uh, you catch 40 beaver in two days or 20 beaver in two days, depending on how far apart your beaver is and stuff like that. Just say, so you get 20 beaver in two days. Well, if there's 30 beaver on that stretch of river, you got 10 less to piddle with, but you got a whole nother run to go. So on the next day you catch three or four or five, you've got most of them. Don't sit around waiting to catch those last ones because you want to keep them there. So you wouldn't do this every year but you're better off numbers wise to pull that and just either go to a different tributary or a different creek or, or different section of the river. So you can stay in the, the, as an example, the forever 40 beaver per day experiment, you know, kind of thing on your, on your line. And if you can stay in the, the, the virgin stuff more and more, then your numbers are automatically going to be up because you're dealing with more numbers to begin with. But it, I've been in places where I've ran snare lines for, you know, a week. And, and on a particular snare line, you know, there, 
they're really spread out. They're they're going up in the woods. They're going up really small tributaries. I've got to wait for them to come back. The population's not that big. And, you know, over the course of the week, I've taken probably half of them out of there. Then I'll move on. But if you've got a good population, hit them hard, get out, hit them hard, get out, hit them hard, get out. And part of the, the reason that you want to think about your system, if you're thinking about long lining, is it easy to put in? Is it easy to take out? And is it uh, going to take a lot of energy for you to do that? Because if you're using something like disposable stakes, you know, I like disposable stakes, I'm not going to pull them out. So if I was going to run a beaver line with disposable stakes, I would have to know in my mind and be ready to accept if I've got out, you know, a hundred snares, I'm leaving a hundred disposables when I leave. If not, and you're thinking about numbers and that's your goal, and you go to pull all those, one, you're going to be tired. Two, you're taking a chance on throwing your back out so you're not trapping. And three, look at all the wasted time that you're not being productive because you're, you could be putting that time spent on, on the new fresh, say, 40 beaver. So you got to keep that in mind also. Uh, disposable stakes on the beaver, I think, are fine as long as you're willing to, to, to leave them. Um, that's a choice you're going to have to make. I know it kills some trappers to leave 50 cents at a set. My back, to me, is worth way more than 50 cents. And the, and the 50 cents that you're saving on that stake and you miss a whole day of trapping that you could be on a, a whole new uh, set of 40 beaver, when you run the numbers, you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, you're, you're going to miss, if you're getting, uh, say, $20 a beaver and you catch 20, be what, 400 bucks or something, and you're trying to save $8 worth of stakes. I mean, use your head when you're thinking about these decisions as far as money and cents goes. So just keep that in mind. But I want the systems that are going to be easy to get in, easy to get out. When I do the wood stakes, I don't try to pull the wood stakes. If they don't come up really, really easy, I cut the cable below the loop and the, and the trap swivel. And then I've got a whole section of these things sitting at home that all I've got to do is with a J-hook, open the snare loop, put it back on there, and then I've got a brand new one. Yes, I'm leaving the stake, and yes, I'm losing that part of the cable, and it may not have caught anything, but the energy savings and getting on new stuff is more important to me than doing it that way. Now, if you're running fiberglass kill poles, well, that's, that's like the best of both worlds if you can put them in because they don't weigh anything, and there, it's the stake and snare support and everything like that. And you don't have to leave anything. So, I mean, that that's a really cool deal if you can put them in. There's places around here I can do that, and there's places around here I can't. So I've got to keep all that into consideration. But, you know, going out long line and beaver, that is a blast, guys. I mean, it really is. Because it's, it's you see sign, you set sign, you catch beaver. Don't make complicated sets. Don't try to get too creative. You know, let the beaver show you where you want to put them. Uh, when I'm on the river, most of the time, it's 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 just setting slides. I'm not getting overly creative with that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, if, as long as you don't make it complicated, it's really fun. It's kind of like rat trapping, but your rats weigh 40 pounds. 
go out and make those memories on that beaver line guy and and i promise you you you'll you'll always have fond memories of it as long as you keep yourself from freezing to death don't fall out if you're not used to a canoe uh don't just go buy one and go stick one in the water guys you know if you can barely get in and out of one without falling over don't trap out of it spend the summer go fishing out of it practice casting out of it practice getting in and out of it stuff like that if you're squirrely in a canoe the last thing you want to do is to find current hit a stump um trying to get in and out when it's a little too deep and you're going to have to really trust the bottoms there different things like that if you're going to be in a canoe you need to, to be able to get one now i do have a canoe now that is that is different i used to run a 17 foot grumman aluminum for the 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 real rocky stuff and the canoe i have now i can't run that same water but it's it's the golden hawk it's wide it's short carries a lot of weight that thing is stable and if you're if you're not used to a canoe i would highly suggest you go to uh get a hold of the guys at golden hawk and that thing is made for trapping and they can customize it for like mine is with the the um, the batteries and the, and the trolling motor set up and everything just like mine is but it's really wide but it's not as long and it's more stable for you while you're in there so but you run down to walmart and you buy you know just a fiberglass coleman and it's made for smooth water and no weight and you're not used to it dude you, you're asking for trouble and and the guy writing this email i don't think is in that situation but i just want to warn you you need to be confident in the watercraft that you're using and if you're not used to a canoe and you want to try the john boat thing in very small water that you're not under power by the the uh, motor you'll find out the john boat is actually probably more dangerous because you can't control it if you've got any current you got any rapids you end up floating around in all different 360 degrees and stuff like that or you're fighting the boat all the time so boats are made to be under power canoes are made to be used with a paddle i've never really trapped out of a kayak i don't know how efficient that would be but get a good canoe like a golden hawk and you won't be disappointed well guys i've got some other stuff i got to get to and i hope everybody is uh you know not shoveling too much snow this weekend from this storm coming through and we can all get back out there and do what we want to do all right talk to y'all later bye